Hi, everyone. Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. This is Eve Harrow, and it is the waning hours of January 15th, 2024, and the beginning of the sixth day of Shvat, 5784. And there were a lot of things I could have talked about on the show, um, a lot of things that have happened since the last time I taped the podcast. I went to a funeral for a soldier who was killed in Gaza, a neighbor of mine, Elkanah Neulander. Um, may God avenge his blood. And we had a mother and son killed in the north by anti-tank missiles, which seems to be the new method that our enemies like to use, of course, shooting them at human beings. And just a few hours ago, there was a terror attack in Renana where at least one person was killed and other people are injured. And yesterday marked 100 days since the beginning of, I don't know what this war is going to be called, um, whatever, we'll see, the Simchat Torah War. I know it's got its name, but we'll see. But 100 days of um, hostages, That's still 136 people who are being held in Gaza. And uh, like just so unbelievable heartbreak for the families, um, understanding, trying to understand what's happening to them. Reports coming out about Israel's preparing for at least some of the young women when they get out, maybe being pregnant by the rapist, the terrorist, or venereal disease, or all kinds of things that just when you think that it's horrible enough, then your mind goes to some other thing that makes it even more horrible. So given all that and all of those really fun topics that I could have discussed, I decided that what I wanted to do was a little bit of Torah and a little bit of, not just a little bit, and a little bit of Judaism, which at at least the end of my day is what keeps me going. Um, the amazingly grand picture of millennia of my people, of our sovereignty back in our land. And so I decided no better to ask to join me on this adventure than um, Rabbi Ari Khan, who we were lucky enough in my community here in Efrat to host as scholar in residence over Shabbat. And uh, he's director of the one-year pro- overseas program, student program at Bar Ilan University, also where he's a senior lecturer in Jewish studies, lives in Givatzaev, which is a community just north of Jerusalem, where he's a pulpit rabbi. And he received his rabbinic ordination, for those of you who are familiar with these names, from two of the greatest rabbis um, of the last century, Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik and Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, both of whom passed away, and Rav Lichtenstein ended up moving to Israel and uh, being the head of the yeshiva not far from where I live here in Gush Etzion and making a tremendous impact here in Israel as well. And um, Rabbi Khan also has authored 14 books. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology. Oh, we have something in common. That's probably about it. And an MS in Talmud. Uh, 14 books on Jewish thought, including the highly acclaimed Echoes of Eden series and the bestseller, The Crowns on the Letters. So that's just like the formal introduction. Uh, Rav Khan, thank you so much for joining me here on Rejuvenation. My pleasure. But I, you know, I agree with you that in that first week of the war, when essentially I think we kind of focused on breathing mm-hmm. and taking one step at a time and remembering to eat the next meal, yeah. sometimes skipping it. The only hour that I had any kind of calm was when I was teaching. Really? It, it, it kind of, like everything else went away. I was giving a class, focusing on what I was teaching. Even preparing for class didn't work because obviously, you know, your mind goes in all other dark places. And, and, and teaching was, was absolutely mishiva tnefesh, as we say. It right. was uh, redemptive. Redemptive for the soul. I have to say, and I'm not, as, as a tour guide, we teach. We teach on buses, we teach on cars, we teach on the road. And for anybody who's any kind of educator, 
there's a there's a tremendous joy in being able like why do we know this stuff? We know this stuff to get it into others. I, I mean, I already know it. What is it doing anything for anybody else? And the knowledge that you have also. But the talk that you gave on Friday night, which was very impressive. Nobody fell asleep on Friday night uh, in the winter. Um, I thought was absolutely fascinating. Fascinating enough that I really wanted to share it with my listeners, both Jews and Christians. Um, because, you know, often when we, when we think about Judaism, especially what's traditionally called Orthodox Judaism, right, or those of us who are trying to live by the letter of the law to some degree. There's a lot, it seems like a lot of minutiae. And it's just like, come on, guys, just be good people. And, you know, try not to do too many bad things and be nice and give charity. And in, in Judaism, we really get down to, to really almost, you know, what we wear, what we eat, how we travel. And in the past three months, what you were describing to us was something that I think not a lot of us have thought about which is the halakha, the, the Jewish law ramifications of fighting this war. So if you could share whatever you can share, and I know there's a lot of things that you can't, um, but whatever you can share about the challenges that you have had, both as a pulpit rabbi and as, you know, as a teacher, but as someone that a lot of people go to just because you're an easy guy to talk to and you know a lot. And this I really have to add. It's very easy for a rabbi or for any kind of religious leader to say no when you approach with a problem. No, you can't do that. You have to know a tremendous amount in order to be able to even grapple with saying yes and be able to go through all the different possibilities. And so that is where you are, and that is why you are very often approached for these questions. So if you could somehow just give us in a few minutes what has since October seventh? What has changed for you as a rabbi? Well, I, I want to go back to a word that you use, minutia. Okay. Yes. You, you know, Eve happens to be friendly with my wife. Now, what if I were to say to her, "Listen, I don't have to get you any presents. I don't have to do any gestures. I don't have to make dinner because I'm a nice guy. Right. Basically, I'm a good person. So, why do you need anything else?" Because I think when there is a relationship, then it is the minutia, is the way that you express it. And it, it's these uh, random acts of kindness, random acts of caring, random acts that you say to the other person, I've been thinking about you and I appreciate you. And Jewish law does that a lot. We have lots of ways of keeping God consciousness because we don't want to go through the day and kind of forget about God. And you use the phrase Orthodox Judaism before. So one of the things that, that Orthodox Jews do, if anybody doesn't know this, um, which is probably the difference between Orthodox and maybe some other kinds of religion or even other Jews, is that there's a whole bunch of blessings that are prayers that we constantly say. We're constantly mumbling. If you're ever watching a <laughs> Jew about to eat, like we kind of mumble something and then, and then we eat it, we're making a blessing. And it's interesting because all these blessings are actually rabbinic. A lot of the prayers that we're saying are rabbinic, meaning when I say rabbinic, it's not that the Torah said to do it, but the rabbis were looking for a way to make that relationship constant and give us God consciousness, which means how do I keep the other person in mind when I'm not together with them? And I'll say it again. I'll go back to you know my own relationship with my wife, with my kids. How do you keep people in mind when you're not with them? How do you keep them on the top of your mind? Well, there's lots and lots of things that we do, and we want to keep God in our mind. And we want to have this relationship, and it ends up being translated into what some people call minutia. I remember years and years ago, I'll be slightly inappropriate, so you'll, you'll, you'll edit me out if you need to. That's totally fine. 
My listeners expect inappropriate. That's why they tune in. There was uh, there was a school that I went to. I was interviewing students to come to Israel, and there was one kid that they sent into a meeting with me, and it was very very obvious after eight seconds he had no interest, and they were just trying to do something to leverage him somehow, and go talk to the rabbi, you know. And he didn't want to come to Israel. He he was actually organizing the whole party scene in Manhattan. And uh-huh. uh, he was making lots and lots of money doing parties. And he was no, int- nobody told him, listen, there's a party scene in Tel Aviv. You can do this also. <laughs> and, and, it, and he said to me, you know, Judaism is just full of uh, of ritual mm. and I don't connect to the ritual. So I said, well, ritual depends on attitude. If it's ritualistic or if it's something which is meaningful. I said, you know, you can have a couple here. The rumor is that Jew, that the rumor is that Jews have relations on Friday night. Okay, there's a rumor like that. Eve, Eve can bring other experts in to discuss this. Next and, week, everybody, yes. And, and, and I said, and let's just say that is the case. One person can look on the outside, oh, that's so ritualistic, and someone else can say, no, that's making love. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really the question. Are, are you doing a ritual, or is it something which is making love? Are you, again, is it consciousness, or is it just something which is mechanical? And if it's mechanical, then there's a problem. Then you need a marriage counselor. If it's, if it's on the other hand, something which is very meaningful, then I think we've accomplished what we're trying to accomplish. I hope some of that made some sense. No, it does, because also the way you're describing it, it forces us to examine the reasons why we're doing something, or it should. If we're not examining it, then it probably is just ritualistic and we're just going through the motions. But if we're actually feeling in that moment, when you talk about making blessings, you'll see Jews mumbling when they leave the bathroom. Because thank you that everything's working, all right? And really, if you know, I had a friend who had, some bowel obstruction, she said, wow, I never forget to say that blessing now. It's only when you lose something that you realize what you had and you feel gratitude for it. So a lot of that has to do with the gratitude and being in the moment. So having said that and and going into what's really happened in October 7th, one of the things that I found fascinating, just to kind of skip ahead a little bit, is some of the questions that you've been asked, like traveling on Shabbat, and, you know, for soldiers and things that normally one wouldn't do, however we are in a, in a wartime, and exceptions are going to be made. One of the things that I really appreciate about what you said, and someone else who was in the room, actually a woman who's also involved in giving halachic answers, is that you threw the question back to the, to the questioner. Well, why do you want to do this? You know, it's easy to ask me permission and get a yes or no. But examine the intent about why you're even asking the question. And I thought that that was so beautiful and perhaps missing in, you know, in a lot of people's lives. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is we live in a generation where people have a great deal of autonomy. We live in a generation where people think they can just go on Google and get any answer they want anyway. I actually wrote an article around 20 years ago on to what, it, maybe I have to, it's right after Google started, maybe I'm exaggerating, 20 years ago, maybe it was 15. 12 years ago, but it was a little bit after Google started, and I, and I wrote about halacha and the internet, which means, and, and I, by the way, I believed at that moment that it's actually technology which creates new generations. When we had the printing press, then people no longer needed a teacher to teach them something, because books were incredibly rare, manuscripts were rare, right. and once there was a printing press, now I could just buy a book and read a book. But if I read a book, I'm not going to have the same understanding as somebody teaching me the book. So essentially, technology creates new generations. So when we were younger, and I'm assuming the same is true with you, when I came to Israel for a year, which I came for my year in 1978, and I stayed for three years, but uh, there was no such thing as, as calling one's parents 
You right. know, you had to you had to go to a payphone, yeah. then you had to stand in line with a bag of those weird coins, a Simo name, right? And the ability to speak was based upon a limited amount of overseas lines. So therefore, if you spoke to someone overseas more often than I don't know, once every six months or so, mm-hmm. it, it, it was rare because we just weren't able to. And you know, I have students now who probably text their mothers four or five times during one class. So you know what? That creates a new generation. So therefore, I understood right away that the internet's going to give us an ability of accessing information. But with it, like everything else, it allows us to access it, but we don't necessarily know what to do with it. You don't know how to weigh it. So people, same thing, people I'm sure walk into their doctors with an exaggerated sense of what they know about their situation because they've Googled too much about it. And I feel bad for doctors today. Yes, my husband complains about that all the time, where patients come in and they tell him what's wrong with them and how he should cure it. Right. And you go to medical school to learn how to make a diagnosis, just like a rabbi goes to rabbinical school to know how to make a diagnosis. So the the issue is not necessarily the symptoms that somebody thinks that they have, or for that matter, sometimes somebody can ask me the question, but they're actually asking the wrong question because they don't really understand what the situation is, but they can say what's bothering them. And I say, oh and then try to help them understand it. So anyway, because of the exaggerated sense of autonomy in the generation that we live in, and therefore people feeling that they have education and they understand, then that itself gives a reason to try to work with people. But what I was dealing with was much more than that. So I'm saying that it's even in a general sense, mm-hmm. whenever somebody is capable, I mean, there's some people who are not, will ask me questions who are not capable. They just want the rabbi say yes or no. Don't give me too much information. And if I give them too too much information, it will take away their confidence. They'll think that I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about because I'm I'm saying you can say this or say this and say this. Well, why are you telling me all this? Just tell me what it is. Mm -hmm. So unless somebody, again, I sense that, well, let me restate that. There are certain types of people that I sense just want a yes or no, and I'll, and I'll, tell them this. And by the way, that's one of the beautiful things that about, about our people. We don't necessarily always know exactly, you know, who it is and whatever. A woman came with a personal question and I never met her and I still haven't met her because my wife decided that she wants to speak to, uh, if, if she could take away some level of embarrassment from some women not having talked to a rabbi and talk to a woman instead. Mm-hmm. So, so she comes back and she goes, oh, not what I expected. Not what I expected in terms of whatever. I mm-hmm. say, thank God, don't ever read books by their, uh, by their cover. But I did understand that that one wanted a yes or no. And then the other people, especially those who imagine themselves as being a little bit learned, more learned. So then I'll explain to them more. Now, in this question that came up, and I, I, let's, be, let's again get to the, the depth of the issue. We, I say we, Orthodox Jews, religious Jews, practicing Jews, do not drive on the Shabbat for whatever the reason is, without getting into any technical things, how cars work, we don't drive on Shabbat. And we do drive when there's a life in danger. Mm -hmm. We drive even when there's a potential for a life in danger, which means sanctity of life is more important than the Shabbat. And therefore, we will, I don't want to say the word desecrate, because it's not Mm -hmm. a desecration. Right. It's an elevation, and, and it's serving Shabbat or, or in a slightly different way that week by, by driving. But all things equal, we're not going to drive. So if someone is going to call me up and ask me, hold it, can I drive You know, in this particular week? So then I'll listen to the question. Now, by the way, I will be lenient for all kinds of reasons. Somebody's going to tell me 
that my mother's in the hospital, I'll say, drive, go there. I don't, I don't like people being in hospitals by themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a better chance of survival when someone else is there with them and watching and listening and making sure they're being treated correctly. And that's, for me, a good enough reason to get in a car on Shabbat and to go in order to be with relatives. Now, again, mm-hmm. could other rabbis argue with me on that? I'm sure they can. They'll say, hold it, technically, what's the issue? I think statistically that there is an issue in that. And I would tell somebody that, that that's a good enough reason to drive. So you're elevating, let's say, emotional health and well-being to the level of physical. Well, in this case, in this case, not just emotional. Mm-hmm. In this case, physical. In okay. this case, because I'm worried about what can go wrong in a hospital. Uh-huh. Okay. So even it's a, yeah, no, it's, it's not even an emotional. Mm-hmm. Issue. Mm-hmm. This this is this is because of physical issues. So when the war started, and, and now we have to go back when the war started. I, I came home again. We woke up that morning. We knew something was going on. My right. son-in-law was home. He started getting messages that that he should come down to Aza. Um, on the way to shul, two other people stopped me, and they all had bits and pieces of information. None of us knew what was going on. There was one fellow who was a high-ranking officer who was my shul, another high-ranking officer, and another person who deals with the volunteer organization Zaka that de- deals with, unfortunately, with the dead bodies. Right. He had his phone on, and which is also not something that is also not something normally normal, normally right. done. He had his right. he he always has a phone on him. But mm-hmm. this time it was out and sitting on the table in front of him. And, at, and when I came home, my son came a little afterwards and said, this guy's name is Chaim. He goes, Chaim's going to call you. So I answered my phone. And when I'd left shul, we had heard, synagogue, we had heard that there were maybe around 30 people who were killed. That was a terrorist attack. Or that, and that's a very big number for a terrorist attack. And when I came home, he called me. He said, there's o- over 100 bodies. And again, turned out, turned out to be a very low so estimate. But when he said there's over 100 bodies, I said to him, that's not a terrorist attack, that's a war. Mm-hmm. So, so right then, I don't know what time it was, 12 o'clock, 12.15, 12.30, on that Saturday, on that Shabbat, I came to that realization there's a war, and I told him all the volunteers need to go because the army is going to have other things to do. Because if there's so many people, the army is going to be busy and the police can be busy. And I was afraid, again, none of us knew the whole situation. I was afraid that if there's so many dead bodies, they're going to kidnap dead bodies and use them as collateral. You know, little did any of us realize that if that would have been the whole fear. But again, that was a big enough reason for me to, quote unquote, break the Shabbat because I felt lives could have been uh in danger at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to know how far I'll go on this, there was Whatever a, you're comfortable a, a fairly well-known journalist who called me today because he's about to go on a speaking tour and he wanted some ideas for things. To, he wanted some Torah content. And uh, I told him that I, I felt that journalists were allowed also on that day, as soon as we understood what was going on, to get on the airwaves, to start, send out their uh, analysis, to send out what was going on. And in order to create, you know, that narrative, in order to make sure that that narrative went out. And unfortunately, we lost the narrative very quickly in terms of the world. What did we have sympathy for like 18 minutes or so? And uh, at at that point, we lost it. But I, I felt that lives are in danger. And he then told me about one case that was misreported a couple of years ago. And he told me the people that were killed in terrorist attacks because it was misreported, because... The other side got very upset about something. I don't want to say anything right. else about that. But uh, he, he was, I think, a little surprised that I said that. 
But this goes towards the end of the conver- of the talk that I gave on Friday night when I talked about macro Judaism. I talked about macro situations, and uh, we need to look at things in a much broader sense. And today, once a narrative is created, then it can absolutely impact lives. And therefore, uh, again, this doesn't mean that everybody starts blogging. This doesn't mean that every single person starts tweeting. This means that people who are of influence, who it will make a difference, and potentially lives are going to be saved because of this, then that, in my mind, is enough of a reason. And once again, I, I know that not all people are thinking the way that I am, but I don't think they're necessarily looking at, the, at, at macro situations. And once you realize the macro, I think it's hard to... Uh, move away. You said your, your husband's a doctor. I did not. Yes. I, I know that I would have complained on Friday night. <laughs> it's okay. I'm sure he had one or two people too. And that's why he hates leaving the house. No, I'm kidding. So, so I think what's important to mention, especially because most of the people who are listening to this do not live in Israel, is that you very much predicate your, your responsa, if you will, the answers that you give to people on the fact that we're living in a Jewish country, in a sovereign Jewish country, where not just our synagogues and our homes are run according to whatever Judaism we go by, but so are the public places. The public places, the army, the hospitals. It is, it is a Jewish world in the sense where you could say that perhaps halacha or laws have to, be, have to take that into account in a way that they haven't been taken into account since we were sovereign last, which was a good 2,000 years ago, and still today in the Jewish communities all over the globe, outside of Israel. Right. Look, the, the first time I was hit with this question is when a friend of mine had joined the police. I'm, I'm saying this goes back to 1985. He had joined the police and he asked me, and by the way, he comes from a very, very well-known rabbinic family. And he asked me, you know, what do I do in terms of my shifts and in terms of that? And, and that was really the first time I started to think about it. But before I tell you what I, I said to him, if, if your husband, I don't know what kind of doctor, but let's just say he was working in a hospital, and he had shifts in the hospital, and he lived in America, as a rabbi, I would tell him, or most rabbis would say to him, if you can avoid working on Shabbat, on Shabbos, then take your shifts on Sunday, take it, take double shifts on Friday, you know, on other, you know, work on Christmas, work other days. Because and take and someone else could do it. I mean, right. patient care will not be impacted whatsoever. And living in our own country and our having our own hospitals, we don't have the luxury of saying that. And therefore, the doctors who take shifts, absolutely, the doctor can take shifts, and the people in security can take shifts, and the people in the army take shifts, and all these people are driving around because there's life and death, and that's part of uh, that's part of the way we run the country. And, and maybe there's a tension here between the quote-unquote ultra-Orthodox, who are very happy having other people doing it. But on the other hand, they recognize that there is life and death situation, which means if you would say to them, oh, you know, we'll all take off, I think they make it very frightened if we all take off, but they're very happy that we're doing it. So there's, uh, there's something, there's an interesting tension that takes place here. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, it was actually under the Maccabees, under the Hashemunayim, where they change the rules that you could fight on Shabbat because you can't take that day off. Your enemy will notice and attack you particularly on that day. It's, it's mentioned in the book of Maccabees. Mm-hmm. I wonder, again, on a halachic level, I wonder right. if it didn't exist beforehand because I suspect that it did. I think that because the Greeks were specifically against the Shabbat, then fighting on the Shabbat seems self-defeative. 
So therefore, their in, their intuition was we won't fight on Shabbat because the Greeks are trying to force us to break Shabbat. And I, I think it's a little more complicated oh, if, if you followed yeah. what I just Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That is absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, in addition to the questions that have come up, like, you know, a soldier, he's told on Saturday morning he can get out for 12 hours. If he doesn't drive home and you, you know, is that, it's not necessarily saving a life. He's not going home to protect his family. He's going home to see his family, whom he possibly hasn't seen in weeks, if not months. Right. So you have no problem with saying absolutely you can go home or it's a case by case basis. hundred percent case by case. I do have a problem, but this is where I think it moved over to an emotional issue and not a pure I'm saving a life Mm because there's this emotional component. So in order to inform the decision making on this i looked into a passage in the talmud which is ruled in jewish law as well which speaks about a woman who's giving birth which therefore creates a life and death situation who is somewhat anxious (laughs) i can't imagine (laughs) and she asks for a candle to be lit even though there was enough light and the best part of this passage is even though she's blind so therefore it is completely on her part emotional because she feels she'll be treated better, and it has nothing necessarily to do with reality. And I thought this was a great passage because it, 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 and it said, in order to calm her down, because if she's more calm, then there's a better chance of her giving birth in, in a way where she'll be okay and the baby will be okay. And therefore, this was a passage that I thought really did speak to emotional well-being. Let, let me just say a couple of things that may not have been clear when I spoke on Friday night. My father's a clinical psychologist and a rabbi. My sister is a psychologist. My brother is a psychologist. So I have, and aside from having my BA in psychology, I, I, I have a little bit of an understanding and a little bit of background and people to consult with as well. And the 20th and the 21st century is not the same as the centuries prior to this, which means if you look in rabbinic literature for people who are really concerned about emotional well-being, it's not just Jewish literature, it's, it's any literature. We did not deal that much with the psyche. We did not deal that much with emotional well-being. So this case, I thought, was somewhat of an outlier, but I thought it would, because it did directly deal with emotional well-being, but I thought it was a great place. Now, I actually started using this on, right after October 7th, on October 8th, that night, because we, our holiday had ended, but outside of Israel, there was another day of a holiday. And I let people know that if people are going crazy outside of the country because they don't know where their loved ones are, you know, who's there, who was hurt, who's okay, and so on, I said, you can text people or post things saying that you're okay because of this emotional issue of of people. Now, this was a little easier because it wasn't, you know, not necessarily was anybody else doing anything. I'm not going to get into all the details why it's easier. But once then we shifted over to that next question about, I'm off for 12 hours, could I come home? So I didn't rule for most people. I said to them, if somebody believes that being home is going to give them that calm, that peace of mind, that ability to recharge their batteries, where they think that they will do their job better, and it's going to border on a possible, again, that's all I need, on a possible life and death situation because they will be that much better off physically and emotionally, then I said there's reason to it. And I said, for most people, I said, I'm not going to rule. I'm telling you that there is this category and you can rely on it. If you feel that that is your situation that you need that kind of time 
home, to sleep in your own bed, to get a hot shower, to use a real bathroom, and so on and so forth. All the things that maybe we take for granted that the two of us know that the people who are often uh, fighting did not necessarily have any of that. Right. And uh, based on that ruling, there were people who uh, who decided for themselves, again, that was the autonomy. I, I told them that there is this category, and they decided that this fits them, and they and for their emotional well-being, this is what they need. So you, to, they had to decide, they had to really grapple themselves, which is fascinating. I, so I love that because a lot of people think that, you know, that rabbis or priests or ministers or really any man or woman of the cloth is going to, because of your greater wisdom in presumably what God wants from us, is going to give an answer. And what, what you do, which is what, what, I, what I so admire, is you make us be adults. You make us say, no, what, where is your motivation for this coming from? Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. You can lie to me, you can whatever. But in the end, you have to face yourself. What, what is the reason for why I'm asking this question? And that, I think, is maybe missing to, to some degree in a lot of organized religions where people go to somebody for those kinds of questions. I mean, what, what do you think about that? I think we lost some. You know, go back to what I said about technology. Right. I think we lost something once Rabbi started answering questions over the phone. I don't know if you know this, but there was yes. pushback. But there was pushback for a really surprising reason. A lot of rabbis didn't have salaries. And uh, I don't know if you're old enough or your, your mother, your grandmother's old enough to remember that you used to go to a rabbi with a chicken and then bring a, bring a nickel mm-hmm. and, uh, and give them the nickel. And then they would look at the chicken. And that was, that was their uh, payroll or nickel or a quarter. To see or if it was kosher. It was, to see if, yeah. it was, see if it was kosher mm-hmm. or not. And uh, once you can answer questions by phone, then uh, the local rabbis were not getting their, their money anymore. You call up on the phone and say, you know, rabbi such and such, this is what's going on. And all the more so, you know, today with sending texts and so on and so forth, but we lose something. I don't like answering questions over a text if I don't know the person. I also admitted on Friday night that I'll give different people who ask the same question different answers. Because by virtue of the fact that a different person is asking the same question makes it a different question. Because there's different types of, uh, of, of issues, of families, of background, of aptitude, of interest, of, uh, of ability to cope, and so on and so forth. So it's not the same question if it's asked by different people. And when you just are getting a text and you don't necessarily know who that person is, then it's very difficult to be able to make the proper analysis. But part of what you're responding to is saying, hold it, I'm making people you know, be involved. What I'm trying to do is go back to that point where somebody sat and discussed things with the rabbi, and hopefully the rabbi had that insight. You know, there's this beautiful story. You mentioned I studied the rabbi Salvation. It's a beautiful story. Maybe it's apocryphal, maybe it's legendary, but it went as follows that somebody came to the rabbi's house before Pesach, before Passover, and you know, one of the customs that we have on the Seder night is we have four cups of wine. Right. And he asked, and he asked, can one drink milk for the four cups of wine? And let's just say that a bottle of wine costs $15, so or 15 ruble, if you want to make the story more mm-hmm. accurate. He handed him 50 ruble and said, no, you can't use, you can't use milk, you need wine. And he walked out. And one of the either students, family, whatever, looked at the rabbi and said, okay, I understand what you did. He's asking, you know, obviously he didn't have money for wine. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to use milk. He's got the cow in the back, whatever it is. So you gave him money, but why do you give him so much? So he said, well, if he couldn't afford milk, then obviously, if he wanted to have milk for the four cups, then obviously he didn't have any money for meat either. So I gave wow. him enough money for meat. 
Because Jews, we don't eat meat with milk together. Wow. That's what a rabbi is. That's what or a rabbi is. is should, <laughs> it should be. Listening to the question and then understanding the real underlying issue and then hopefully trying to solve the underlying issue and not just put a band-aid on the problem. You know, I read an essay years ago about the type of Judaism that arose after the Holocaust because really the Torah world was so decimated along with the Jews themselves in Europe. And that one of the reasons that to many people it seems like rabbinic Judaism in the post-Holocaust world doesn't ask those questions and is a little more cold, I don't know if cold is the word, but a little more oriented towards halakha without necessarily having the empathy and taking the person into account is because the rabbis that were empathic died with their communities in Europe. They went with their communities to the camps and ended up dying with them. And so almost by default, the yeshiva world that arises in the, in the post-Holocaust world and, and rose beautifully. I mean, especially here in Israel, the, the amount of Torah learning and, and all around the world. But here in Israel, it's really it's a breathtaking thing to see. And nothing I think that we should take for granted either, um, that, that those efforts were made. But it was perhaps a little more cut off from the community. You didn't necessarily have these community rabbis who knew, for example, if a woman came in and said, I had a pot of chicken soup and I accidentally dropped milk into it. And if he says to her, you're going to have to throw the whole thing away, he knows they're not eating for a week. She'll listen. But they're going to starve for a week. He might have looked for any way that he could, because he knows this family, to figure out a way why, how it could be done. And so as a rabbi, and I, and I, I don't want to sit here and, and put down other rabbis or the rabbinate or anything like that, far from it. But do, do you, is there, is, are there other rabbis like you out there? Is there, is there a genre of rabbis that are taking the whole context of the question and the human being into, into account? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. And uh, I also would not want to put any other rabbis down. No, no. As you know, I, I was brought up in a house where my father, again, aside from a psychologist, is a rabbi. And I, I, I saw certain things. I was also blessed, as you said in your introduction, to have been able to have studied with really the among the best rabbis in the world at the time. And uh, that gives a, lev a level of confidence. And then it's actually, and then when, I, when we moved to Givat Zev, Naomi and I moved here in 1985. Mm -hmm. There were no real rabbis here a couple of the guys who were young my age maybe yeshivist kind of students and if i got questions on shops then i had no luxury of i i, I just had to answer right. just had to you know do whatever whatever it is that i could and i would love to believe that there are others as well and and, and i think that part of it again i don't want to talk about myself i think if people have confidence and people have have competence and confidence and, and part of it is the community the community mm -hmm. needs to also back up rabbis who, who are going to give answers, who are going to be brave, who are going to say things which, which again, which are well-based in tradition, but nonetheless may be a new application of tradition, which sometimes people uh, recoil a little bit. I, I just want to go back and comment on what you said about the post-Holocaust generation, because uh, I think about it a lot. You know, some of, because I remember when I was in elementary school, all the elderly rabbis, all the European born, and they were they were probably incredibly frustrated as you, you know, I didn't, I was born in, I don't know how old you are. I'm not asking. I was born, <laughs> in, I was born in 1960. I'm younger than you. Okay. Which yeah. is only 15 years after the Holocaust was right. over. Right. And it didn't seem that way when I was growing up and people, the war a long time ago, that war had happened. 
And I didn't realize that the first time it hit me, there was a guy in my shul, the nicest man in the world, Mr. Goldberg. And I was shocked to find out that Mrs. Goldberg, very nice lady, oh, she had a whole family before the war and they were all killed. This is her second marriage. Mm -hmm. and, and, and by the way, in those days, who ever heard of second marriages? Mm -hmm. You know, she lost everybody. And this is her. And you just started realizing at some point that every person that had an accent in our neighborhood had survived the war. They were all survivors. And just imagine the families they lost and imagine the countries they lost and the towns they lost. Imagine all the tunes to the Chadodi, to the right. prayers that were lost. An entire and, world. And, 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 and then you say, and now you take a rabbi who could have been a rabbi in a big yeshiva in Europe, and you teach third grade in this yeshiva. Can you imagine the frustration that right. they must have had? And then you look, you say, oh, they weren't empathetic enough and so on. They, they were probably very, very broken people. Mm -hmm. And uh, and what and, and the fact that not only did we survive but we thrived right. and 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 miracles happened because nobody predicted that the America that we came from would somehow become a place of Torah and nobody predicted that Israel would be a place which was as religious and vibrant as it is today. Right. It's the, these these are open miracles. Yeah, they, no, they they absolutely are. It's something that I think about all the time. But I, I think it's important to also say that. A lot of, and to make sure that the listeners understand that a lot of the things that you're saying now to people is specifically because we're in a war situation and because we're in Israel where a lot of people are watching what's happening here. Like what we do is not just how we affect ourselves. Did we drive on Shabbat? Didn't we? For some people, that's not even a question. For a lot of Israelis, th that, that wasn't what they were thinking on October 7th. I have to ask my rabbi if I can drive. Because it's something that they would ordinarily do. And what you were explaining is that there's a very big picture here. And everything we do affects our society, our Jewish society, in ways that are a huge responsibility, a huge privilege that we're at this point, that these decisions can affect so many people. It's also a very large responsibility. Well, I don't think about that so much. No? <laughs> No, no, I don't think as much about the responsibility. I, I, I think about more of the immediacy of the issue, the person in front, the situation in front. A, a couple of years ago, there was a, a terrorist attack where the, where it took place on the on Harhabayat, on the Temple Mount, and there were two dead terrorists. And I got a phone call from Zaka, who deals with the bodies, saying, are we allowed to go up on the Temple Mount? Now, I don't have to tell wow. you that this is something which is controversial. And they asked a different rabbi, and the rabbi said, I didn't know. I don't know. Now, I don't believe him that he didn't know. What I believe is that he, again, he was thinking about the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And he was thinking about other things. Or precedent and I, or something. And I, I said right away, if there are any volunteers, and some of them are Hasidic, and therefore this would make sense. So I said, any of the volunteers who went to the mikvah or the ritual bath this right. morning, I said, tell them, take, tell them good, take off their shoes and go up to Temple Mount and remove the bodies. And then they hesitated. And they said, and they called up the other guy and they called me back. And he, and he said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. And I said, don't you realize that even if there aren't any volunteers like that, that this is an explosive situation. Mm -hmm. And this is, and then the guy said, no, no, it's really contained. I said, it's not contained. Anything, contained. Having to do, anything to do with the Temple Mount is not contained. And then they called a great, great rabbi, Rabbi Nevinsol. Mm -hmm. And Rabbi Nevinsol responded and said, if there's any volunteers who uh, went to the mikvah this morning, tell them to take off their shoes 
and to uh, go to the Temple Mount and, and remove the bodies. And then he got attacked in the newspapers on uh, on Sunday morning. They're, oh, Robert Evans holds in favor of going up to the Temple Mount, which and any of your listeners who don't know, there are some Orthodox Jews who think it's a wonderful thing and some think that it's too holy. Mm-hmm. And if it's too holy, it's something that we should try to avoid. And uh, and it, it was interesting, the, the people's hesitation. But yeah, that decision I absolutely understood that if this is not done quickly and done properly, then this is an explosive situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it just to, in terms of the, what seems like in the last few months is that people are grappling with God. Why did this happen? How did this happen? Some people, more than a few, have seen open miracles that have happened to them, whether it's in uniform, whether it's from October 7th itself. Um, and that as as in every situation, even a horrific one, there are always there are always opportunities for uh, for other things to happen. And if there is a sensitivity, I would say, to those who perhaps weren't living God oriented lives, however you want to put that, it's probably a miserable way of saying it. Before October seventh, if they see that there is, I'm, I'm struggling for words here, Afghan. Maybe you can help me. You know, like it. An atmosphere, but I think anyway, when people go to battle, then yeah. they start. To th- I think that they start thinking much more in terms of existential issues, and right. they think about what is what is right and what is wrong, what's important, what's not important. And people realize that they may not come back, and they are connecting with something which is so much bigger than themselves. And I think that any and any Jew who gets into that situation, or any or most Jews, many Jews who mm-hmm. get into that that situation start to think about it's not just israel it's israel and god it's and they think about something bigger and there are therefore a lot of the soldiers who asked various religious articles and various and various things because they felt that connection at that point and they wanted that protection as it were or they wanted they wanted to feel that they're representatives of a jewish people and i think that's also very clear that the yeah. soldiers the soldiers who are fighting are representative not just to the state of Israel yeah. of every Jew everywhere and I think that I think a lot a lot of them I think their officers said it I think that they understood it and I think that they felt it uh, I was reading that over 40% of the soldiers fighting in this war are fathers which means that first of all they have a lot to lose right they when they go into war but many of them have said this is exactly why they're fighting harder because they do not want their children to live in a world where this kind of evil exists. And even if it means making the ultimate sacrifice, and too many of them have, this is the bigger picture. And, and I think that it's a beautiful thing as we talk, you talk about the, you know, people being more, I wouldn't say self-centered, but autonomous, and is, is it good for me? And this shows, I think, something beautiful also about the Jewish people, that we're future-oriented. We do this for our children. We always have. And, um, you know, it's about that. And, and that's why it seems like Israel's always popping up as one of the happiest countries in the world, even though on the face of it, it's like, what? What, what do you guys have to be happy about? Because of that, because of that sense, this is a bigger picture than just our lives and focusing on the future and on our children and our grandchildren. And on, we're fighting for life. We're fighting for life. Yeah, very, very simply like that. Okay, Rabbi Ari Khan, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, I don't know if my listeners in the few minutes that we had together got a sense of um, the battle that you're fighting to a great degree also here in order to to put forth ideas and to make lives life 
I'm not going to say easier because that's in itself a slippery slope, but for us to understand exactly, to understand the meaning of what we're doing on even the little things. And that's not the minutia of Judaism in the sense of nitpicking, but it's the little things that make up the fabric of the whole. And that's what we're about in this country, especially. And, uh, and maybe perhaps especially in a time of war where if we make mistakes or the price is quite high. Very, very, very high, and we're not going to we're not going to let that happen as much as we possibly can. Right, and okay. if people didn't and if people didn't understand the tension, there are some things that we do and we allow in extreme situations, but we don't want the extreme to become the mainstream, and we have to understand what is extreme, and that and there's always going to be that fear, and that was part of. We're not going to go through the whole talk on Friday night. Right. That was. That was really where I had put my boundaries there, where I was afraid of certain things becoming mainstream. That's, mm-hmm. where, that's where I made the line. And uh, as you saw, there was some pushback. Yeah, no, about people saying, okay, now this is going to be the mainstream. It's not just an exceptional situation during a war. Um, and that, that's the slippery slope. Exactly. Yes. That, that's, what I had to, that's part of what I have to deal with as well. Right. Okay. Rabbi Ari Khan, thank you so much. Yes, you should only get questions about, I don't know, what, not, not, not questions that have to deal with light and death. Happy questions. If we had twins, can we, should we make the circumcision in the same day, or I don't know what. We have two others coming up. If you have twin, two twins, right, a pair of twins, right, one boys. is born on the last day of Adar, of the first Adar, and the Come second on, one man. is born 20 minutes later on the first day of the second Adar. 13 years later, there's one Adar. And the one who's born second will have the bar mitzvah on the first day of Adar. The one who was born first will have oh. the bar mitzvah 29 days later. There you go. Okay, everybody, you heard that. and But that, I'm sure that has happened. <laughs> so and, that, and Rabbi Khan even has the answer for that. Thank you so much. Um, be well. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Thanks to Tabitha. And may we have a week of, um, of really good news for all of us. And thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, everybody. Goodbye for now.